Hello and welcome to The City Unfinished. This is the third episode of our first season, which for those of you joining us now is all about the embodied dimension of urban politics in Amsterdam, the city where we're based. In episode one, we talked to science and technology studies researcher Justine Lohan about the politics of peeing in the city. In episode two, soundscape researcher Edda Bild talked to us about urban sounds and annoyance. Episode three, the one you're listening to now, We'll take you back to the fall of 2018, when Sarita Jarmack met with art historian Kara Verbeek in an Amsterdam attic under very heavy rain, which you'll hear in the background. To optimize the experience, we advise you to embrace the soothing sound of raindrops hitting the windows. Perhaps you'd like to grab a cup of tea and a blanket. Or maybe you'd like to take it a step further and see if you can trigger a synesthetic experience in which you can smell the rain as well as hear it. This would be very appropriate considering the topic of the conversation between Sarita and Caro, which revolved around smell, in art history and urban history. Here's Sarita, with a short introduction to today's interviewee. Carl Verbeek is um, an art historian with specializations in the field of senses in relation to culture. She's an expert in olfactory and tactile art, and she is currently working on her PhD on art historical smells at VU University here in Amsterdam, uh, along with the IFF, which is the International Flavors and Fragrances, at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. Uh, she does all kinds of cool things, like curating the only scent platform in the Netherlands called Odorama. Um, she makes fragrance tours uh, from museums and other institutions where the emphasis is not only on historical smells, but also on historical smelling. So, for example, what did smells mean? During our meeting, she told me how she got into her current field, and here's Carl. <laughs> It's actually quite exciting um, to work with other senses, other from the sense of sight as an art historian. That's why I sometimes refer to myself as a, a census historian or a scent historian. The reason I started to uh, become interested in the sense of smell particularly was when I noticed that a lot of artists actually address the sense of smell. The first time I noticed was when I was a master student of history of arts and our group went to the Venice Biennale in um, 2001 and we entered the Arsenale, it's a really big building and I noticed this smell and it really annoyed me mm. and I was thinking why am I smelling party or something or the kitchen um, this is really disturbing my aesthetic gaze and then hundreds of meters ahead, I noticed where the smell was coming from, and it was actually a work of art. And I thought, okay, as an art historian, I have no idea how to deal with this. And that's when I decided to do my master's thesis on olfactory arts. Olfactory is the adjective for the sense of smell. Um, a lot of people still don't even know this word, and it says a lot, right? And then I started to notice that Contemporary artists aren't the only artists that work with the sense of smell. 
but even classic modern artists used to work with smell quite a lot and that was so flabbergasting to me and I thought okay but those smells are gone I want to know what it smelled like Caro explained that knowing what this art smelled like is a challenge since it often implicates present-day reconstructions of past smells based on whatever information is available Another challenge of her field has to do with bringing original or reconstructed olfactory artworks into exhibition spaces, which are still very much geared towards the visual. Curators and conservators and keepers are trained to preserve and present art visually. And of course, our art, a lot of our art is visual. And these are museums, these buildings and the white cube they're highly deodorized, highly, uh, they're stripped of everything. They're very clinical. Yeah. They're the opposite of uh, smell. Um, they're clean. And when you start to introduce smell, it often, maybe scare is too big of a word, but it might alarm con conservators and curators. And I understand this because it's so hard to control those smells. You don't know how they act upon materials of other works of art on display. And they travel. So it's a bit like sound arts. When two sound art artworks are placed close together and you hear both of them, we, we all know how frustrating this can be. They mix. With smells, it's even harder because you can some molecules are so volatile that you smell them throughout an entire museum, affecting the experience of all the other artworks. There's not, not just the fear of damage, but also of experience, so the controlling. And a lot of contemporary artists use smell, and a museum wants to preserve what it collects. But how can you preserve a smell? It's so hard. You need to recreate it, because it smells are volatile, they disappear. Um, so it's quite challenging. But what I do know is that the experience that the audience, audience, by the way, refers to the sense of hearing, but that the audience loves the sense of smell, loves to engage with smells in museums. And my statement is, or uh, my hypothesis, or what I think, if artists in the past used smells and you are a museum of the history of art then what does it mean not to include those smells um, in terms of representation of the history of art can you truly represent the history of art without including all the senses that these artists used so there's there's challenges uh, questions um, that I think we'll need addressing in the following years, as more and more artists are engaging with the sense of smell. An example of olfactory art occupying the exhibition space, Caro spoke of the art show she co-curated, titled Aromatic Art Reconstructed, in search of lost sense, held at the Freie Universiteit in Amsterdam in early 2017. There, visitors had a chance to smell historical events, such as the Battle of Waterloo, for instance, and to participate in the happening, live moon smelling, by Hagen Betzfieser and Sue Cork. 
big part of the show were the reconstructions made by IFF, International Flavors and Fragrances. I worked with them for my PhD, together with the Rijksmuseum. We based about 13 smells on the collection, on paintings and objects. And many of them were on display there, on sniff, as you might say, <laughs> on sniff. People could um, yeah, smell the Battle of Waterloo. Smell a 16th century rosary. Um, smell an 18th century canal house, etc. And then on the other, the second part of the exhibition was about contemporary art. Mm -hmm. So the smell of the moon by the artists I mentioned before. And some work by Peter de Cupido, who is a very famous olfactory artist nowadays. Um, uh, great. Also iconic work by Gail Nulls, the smell um, World Sensorium, it's called. And for this work, uh, Nulls asked all embassies in the world about their national smell. Yeah, so that makes you also makes makes you think. Okay, is smell also part of national identity, uh, of cultural identity? And then what happens if you mix them all together and you can inhale the world identity? To attach an odor to the abstract notion that is national identity is an interesting imaginative exercise. At the city level though, which is one that we live and move through with our bodies, smells that we have little to no control over are often unavoidable parts of the experience. In the 2012 book, A Millennium of Amsterdam, Spatial History of a Marvelous City, author Fred Fedes briefly discusses the city's smelly history. In 1730, an unknown Amsterdamer described his hometown as a beautiful virgin with stinking breath. This olfactory reputation of Amsterdam's was, according to Fedes, chronicled by a number of writers and travelers throughout history. What made it particularly striking, perhaps, was the contrast between how the city looked at a distance and how it smelled up close. In his 1666 description of Amsterdam, Frenchman Pierre Lejol went as far as writing that the renowned city was made out of shit and mud. As Carol Verbeek discussed, olfactory experiences of Amsterdam were indeed intense and, of course, deeply entangled with class-based differentiation in a number of ways. Here's Carol again. The canals are, were very smelly because they were used as open sewers, especially in summer and when there isn't a lot of uh, current. Uh, people had to flee the city, especially the rich people. They were able to flee the city because it was, it was awful. People write about it in their diaries. Uh, tourists write about it, how, how awful this stench must have been. It's a known fact that you can adapt to smell, but apparently this was too horrible to adapt to. So people complained about it, um, and you would mostly smell sulfuric compounds, mm. which are universally considered the worst smells, mm. especially sulfuric um, SH compounds. Mm -hmm. This changed over time and you can still see how the city council tried to fight these smells. You can still see some visual and smell some olfactory remnants and those are the lime blossom trees. What we say in Dutch, lindebloesem. All those trees were planted along the canals for their shadow to keep the water a bit cooler. Of course also because of their roots so they could protect um, the, the sides of the canal, the walls, but also because they give off an incredibly sweet smell in spring. Of course, that's only one 
season a year that you can smell them, but it re- it's the season when it starts to become warmer and more smelly. So that really helped. Same thing happened in Leiden. So lime blossom is a very important historical smell for the, the canals in Amsterdam. And what I find beautiful is that you can still smell it, but most people will never consider it an intentional intervention. It, it was an intentional intervention. The Dutch canals or the Amsterdam canals started to become less smelly only at the beginning of the 20th century. I do know that rich people would live, in Dutch the word is afwindig, so out of the wind of certain mills. Because the mills were the factories of Van La Lettre that diffused terrible smells, especially the, the, the mills that made paper and leather, awful. And the poor people lived in the wind of these mm. factories. And then there were certain spaces in the, um, the city like where they used to work leather that were very smelly. And the rich people would live as far away as possible from these really smelly places. And then inside the house, you can see a clear olfactory division because the, the room where you receive your guests, if you're a rich person, was as far away from the kitchen and the toilet as possible. So you wouldn't smell that. So that's the most deodorized space at the back of the house. And there you can re-odorize aesthetically. Um, for example, by using tulip vases, those famous the tulip vases, those pyramids. The tulips that were put in there weren't just a visual display of uh, riches. They were also an olfactory intervention. About uh, smell and, and status uh, or hierarchy, yeah, those two concepts are very closely intertwined already in antiquity. Only emperors, priests, the highest in class were allowed even to smell sweet and fragrance. This was before synthetics, so those substances like resins, like myrrh and frankincense were incredibly um, expensive. Poor people could never afford it. In the Middle Ages, when there were outbreaks of plague, you would have to fight it with sweet fragrances. Mm. That was the belief. Bad smells made you sick. Uh, bad smells diffuse diseases. So the rich people could defend themselves against the plague by using sweet uh, balms, resins, etc. The poor people had to use vinegar or rosemary. Rosemary was often used against uh, the plague. There are even um, uh, little poems uh, about this. So you can already see a distinction, smell distinction between classes, classes when it comes to um, health, to status, also aesthetics. Rich people, people wore different kinds of perfumes. But this changed also at the beginning of the 20th century because of um, synthetics. Substances became much cheaper. So perfumes, once worn, by nobility and the bourgeoisie became very common for the poorest of society. Things like eau de cologne, something that was worn by Napoleon, was then suddenly the perfume used by farmers and workers who could then also mask their smells of poverty. Because of course, 
stenches in the nose of the beholder, but who is the most important beholder? It's usually the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie decides what is foul and what is fragrant. And of course, the lower classes were considered foul. They try to cover this foulness with eau de cologne. And then eau de cologne became the new symbol for foul and for poor. So those are some really interesting shifts of the same sense, obtaining different meanings throughout history. If you're interested in this topic, and like us, based in Amsterdam, you may want to check out Odorama, the scent platform that Cara Verbeek curates at Mediamatic. If you look up the program, you'll find all kinds of events focused on olfactory art, research, and design. Okay, uh, so we, and by we, I mean Sarita, Anastasia, Elisa, and myself, uh, just had a collective hearing of the conversation with Cara Verbeek, which reminded me of some of the first discussions we had at the start of this podcasting experiment. Uh, Elisa, I remember uh, you mentioning at the time having been to one of her exhibits at the at the Freie University. Um, yes, I, I do remember that I went to the exhibition that she organized at the Freie University, which I think was in February to, or March 2017. What I found particularly interesting was the exhibition where she... Um, in collaboration with the IFF and uh, Rijksmuseum, she re reconstructed the, the smells of some uh, historical paintings. Uh, and the two that I remember at this very moment, which I found very interesting, uh, was the, um, the painting about the, the Battle of Waterloo by Jan Willem Pinemann, uh, where you basically can see uh, Napoleon on, on uh, riding a horse and running away from the, from the battle. And basically what they did, um, they, they put together the, the smell of the horse, the smell of the, or the cologne that they knew Napoleon was using. And also, I don't know, the smell of, of sweat. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you, you had this tiny bottle with a, what is it called? A puff, uh, puffer. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and like, you, like the little perfume. Yeah, like a little mm -hmm. perfume <laughs> bottle and you could squeeze it and you could smell what, what it, yeah, what could have smelled the bat, well, what Napoleon could have smelled in mm -hmm. the running away from the Battle of Waterloo, mm -hmm. uh, even though I think they have been very, um, let's say, delicate. I mean, they didn't really put the smell of war, mm -hmm. like, I don't know, bodies or mm -hmm. <laughs> like the, the scarier smells. And the other painting that I thought was very interesting was uh, one by Peter de Hoog, um, which is called At the Linen Closet, where you see the inside of, a, of an Amsterdam house, uh, of an old Amsterdam house, a Grachtenhaus. And, uh, and you see two women putting the clean laundry in the closet with flowers on top. I think it was lavender. And, and she recreated the smell of that house uh, with the lavender um, fragrance, uh, the, the smell of, uh, of mold and damp because Amsterdam houses were very um, yeah, humid, but also like the, the stench, the possible stench that was coming from the canals, like she also mentioned in the, in the interview. Actually, I had a really hard time at points talking about smell because I felt like as a primary, to make smell a primary lens, um, which, yeah, that in itself is a visual sort of comment that to try to speak about it was challenging to me to try to come up with the vocabulary and the phrases um and so car was sort of uh, was was able to it was sort of like rewiring how i think to incorporate to incorporate uh, smell 
And I was wondering in your fields, like how is the, is it, um, is it talked about? Is it uh, brought into the conversation? Uh, do you, are people experiencing this as well? Or is, are there some sort of, um, sort of political conversation around it? While listening to Carlos' interview, I was thinking about St. Petersburg canals. Oh, you know, okay. St. Petersburg, the second Amsterdam. <laughs> uh, people say that the canal structure were also built after the structure of Amsterdam canals. Hmm. And they, um, I realized that the smell of the canal is now used and mobilized by activists in order to detect whether there hmm. was illegal leak in the water done by city officials or by state factories that allocated That's next now. to canals. Exactly. Ah, okay. And so they have no other instruments of detecting that and smell becomes something that they can activate and politicize. But then the next step is more problematic because the legal system does not accommodate smell as important actor or factor. Yeah. So then you need to make mm. the whole chemical analysis of something. And sometimes chemical composition and bad smell do not cooperate, do not align together. Therefore, bad smell in itself cannot prove anything, even though bad smell is a product of a legal leak. The incident that, that happened when I was doing the when yeah, when I was doing fieldwork for my master's thesis mm -hmm. was precisely that I that I interviewed this woman who uh, in Rome, this is in Rome, who is um, a Bangladeshi woman, and she was telling me about this uh, awful incident that 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 she had with a neighbor of hers because so this woman who is Italian, she used to get really, really angry and really upset about the fact that that her food smells would travel to her apartment. And she was so furious and so aggressive that she even uh, got to to attack her physically. Um, and uh, and that was something that made me think precisely how smell in this specific case, but also like other sensory registers become um, a way to do race, to do exclusion, to do mm. to do politics in mm. a in a way that seems more innocent mm -hmm. and, and and less yeah less clear. Mm -hmm. It's more subtle, but it's there. The way I see it is that um, it's as if a bad smell is a bad smell universally. Okay. So no one can object to object to that to that yeah. like no one uh, can be against cleanliness for example mm. but what does it mean to be clean and what does it mean to smell bad uh, there are very uh, racialized and classed yeah the, the the notion of a good smell or a bad smell is is racialized and classed is gendered there is there are tons of literature about this yeah. so it's it's i think it is yeah, a subtle way to to say, yeah, I don't want to have a foreigner or an immigrant next to me because they are uh, they are bothering me. I think it's interesting how um, usually talking about the senses provides a language, like to go yeah. back to the to how we talk about things that often seems a lot a lot less political, right? Than uh, so it's not mm -hmm. about the unwanted, uh, let's say, bodies, unwanted uh, immigrants, unwanted people, but unwanted smells. And as if like it was, it's it's almost like this pre, like phrasing it, it as this kind of precognitive reaction that you have, yeah. and therefore it's legitimate in some way. Yeah. At least that's how also I, I yeah. hearing you you share about your research is also something that comes to mind. Yeah. This is precisely what I what I was trying to say. Like mm -hmm. it's it's easier to say that that smells bad, mm -hmm. and I don't want that smell rather than saying, yeah, I don't want this person living next to me.
So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember I'm also um, pulling it out of, uh, online, this article from The Independent that came out a while ago. It's from August 2017. And it was when there was also this controversial discussion in in Amsterdam because it was a, a rental ad oh, yes, for an yes. apartment that um, it was a quite expensive apartment in an expensive part of the city mm. and it said that it didn't allow non-Western cooking in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, a very let's say, clear example of what we're talking about. Yeah. Like, yeah, how to do difference through, let's say, smell, yeah. <laughs> and smell of food, of and, non-Western food. And also uh, regarding that, because this is precisely an agency that says only people who cook the Western way can live here. So how then smell, how smell becomes a way to um, decide or establish who can live and who cannot live in certain areas. And and it becomes also a way uh, to whitewash neighborhoods, for example, Mm. to to whitewash and to make them, uh, to upgrade them, to mm-hmm. make them more bourgeois or mm-hmm. more upper, mm-hmm. yeah, middle class, not necessarily upper class, of course. In our discussion, Elisa shared some of her findings on the history of the Indischebjörd, a gentrifying neighborhood in the east of Amsterdam that she's currently researching through a multisensory ethnographic approach. Uh, basically, what I what I have discovered is that um, so the Indischebjörd um, emerged at the um, at the beginning of the 20th century as a as a working class neighborhood, and they were uh, these houses were built. They were cheap. It was cheap housing for workers that were employed in the harbor that was previously in the east of the city, but also for the workers of the factories because on the Krukus Island there were a lot of factories. There was um, a, a, a landfill. Um, there was an abattoir. There was um, so there were all these. It was an industrial pole, so the air was definitely not not really nice. It was not clean, and it definitely didn't smell good. And there are a lot of blocks and um, nose witnesses. Yeah, nose witnesses, (laughs) or or yeah, yeah, or or people who were children and lived in the area at the time who remember going to the to the. to the slaughterhouse, they remember the smell of the of the dead bodies, the smell of blood. Um, so you can imagine when you have such a big slaughterhouse next to your neighborhood, of course, the air is quite foul. And I think that this really resonates with what Caro was saying in the in the interview, how um, the lower classes or the working classes were generally associated with foulness and, and, and bad smelling and how they eventually were pushed to live in smelly areas and dirty areas because that's where they that's where they belonged in mm-hmm. a way. So the, what I what I think is interesting is to look at smell through its uh, infrastructure yeah to look at it yeah indeed you see (laughs) the the visual uh, language that's the problem i had when we were i had all this visual language yeah yeah true but to study it or or yeah let's say look at it i don't know (laughs) through or together uh, with the infrastructure through which it travels when people complain that smells travel to their apartment Mm. i think it's interesting also to look at for example the architecture what kind of architecture allows for smells to travel um you know pipes and cracks maybe it's low quality architecture maybe it's working class architecture like in the indish beard Mm -hmm. uh, or like in the neighborhood in rome where i'm doing my research so how um 
Or like what Caro says in the gallery, you know, as mm-hmm. a space where it's supposed to be yeah. um, sterile almost, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. to, yeah. And for me, for example, the the idea that, um, you know, the house needs needs to be sealed, you know, like my smell, my smells need to remain within the space of my house also has to do with touch. In mm-hmm. touch um, intended as the haptic as, mm-hmm. is more broadly not just touching with your hands or skin but more like um like separateness or or contact you know how um we're going into this uh, you know the, the modern subject as bounded subject as mm-hmm. something that needs to be within bounds and and has to it reminded me of a very nice research that was done by Alek Harhordin on the collective, collective infrastructure, is this inherent experience of Soviet housing in which the pies, pipes and heating systems are arranged in a way that the sound travels very easily. Mm-hmm. And if you want to change the uh, heating system in your apartment, you need to arrange it through agreements with all your neighbors, which means that First, if you want to do renovation, you need to have like a community created through that. But also if you make a sound, then your neighbors would definitely hear that. And they would reply to you by beating in the heating system and the battery with X or with something. And then this sound is considered as the good sound. But the traveling is very interesting subject. Mm. And I think it's something that maybe urban scholars also have been overlooking for some time, Mm. not thinking about collectivization or individualization as the product that is done through the very built environment that we inhabit. How do we close? How do, should this just be the sound? But how do we close? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It should. Bye. Thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs> Send us your letters. Thanks for listening to The City Unfinished. This podcast was made possible by a seed grant, awarded by the Center for Urban Studies of the University of Amsterdam. The talking, thinking, editing, and laughing <laughs> were done by Elisa Fiore, Anastasia Halovnyova, Sarita Jaramak, and myself, Carolina Frosach. Original music and sound mixing are by Luca Di Maio. 